0: Welcome to our series, DOXA, that we have been in now for several weeks, that we're staying in here through Easter. We've been working our way through seven core Christian doctrines. We're not doing them in order necessarily, as you will see tonight, but the first one is God is one, which we've done. The Bible is true, which we've done. Then there's the cross is enough, mankind is helpless, which is what Pastor Justin did such an incredible job last week bringing that message to us. Jesus is life, eternity is real, and then tonight we're going to be talking about the church is central. The church is central. Now I know it's Easter, we're connecting it to resurrection, so don't get nervous. It's coming. Our goal in this series, though, is not to spend a lot of time in an apologetic of sort trying to convince you of the, ver- the veracity or the-, the truthfulness of these seven core doctrines. If you're interested in learning more about those, let us know. We can point you to some resources. But I know from my experience growing up in the church, and maybe it was true for you, all of the time was spent on convincing people of the truthfulness of these doctrines. So, so much so that if we're not careful that Christianity gets reduced to religious intellectualism, we want to go beyond the truthfulness of these doctrines and we do believe that they are true. And we want to ask the question, how is your belief in these doctrines affecting the way that you live? Specifically, is your belief in these doctrines leading you into glorious living? Are they unlocking for you glorious living? Doxa, the name of this series is the Greek word that is translated in English, glory, or splendor, or grandeur, or power, or kingdom. It's also translated in the New Testament as praise and honor. There are also times that you'll find in scripture where it's translated to refer to the revealed presence of God and sometimes God himself. Glory. But the root word of doxa it means to think. It means to suppose. It means to believe and consider and imagine so you can see why this word is such a great word to talk about this series that we are in together. How are these things that you believe? How are these things that you think on? How are these things that are core to our belief as Christians? How are they revealing the glory and the splendor of God to the world around us? When other people are observing us in our profession of faith, through our actions, through our attitudes, through the character of Christ that's hopefully being demonstrated through us in the workplace and in our communities. Is there something stirring in them maybe that they don't even understand is, is, that is the beginning of a praise within themselves to the glory of God? Is, is there something of our lives as a witness, as we are observed, That there is a stirring in other people, even though they might not yet understand it, that is drawing them into a place of their own awe of the magnificence and the splendor of the kingdom of heaven. Doxa, unlocking glorious living, will you be a witness for him? Somebody say the church is central. The church is central. So let me ask you a question. We're just coming right to you today. Is being a committed part of a church family as important to you as it is to Jesus? Yeah. Is being a committed part of a church family as important to you as it is to Jesus? I'm going to be talking about my dad a little bit. I'm wearing this cross. If you follow me on Facebook, you might have seen that post. If you don't follow me on Facebook, I don't know what you're waiting for. I'm a nice guy. My dad wore this cross when I was growing up everywhere he went, whether he was in t-shirts and Bermuda shorts, because that's what they wore back then, socks and sandals and all about it, or whether he was in a coat and tie he uh, had on one of this cross. He had a few of them. This is one that he wore. But I'll never forget, my my brother is 11 years younger than I am, so he wasn't here yet. But on Saturday mornings during the summer, you've heard me tell the story before, that when it was time to cut the grass, my dad would always start just outside the bedroom window of me and my sister. Some of you are like, yeah, that's a good idea. He would start there because that was his way of saying with that Briggs and Stratton motor, it's time to get out of bed. Now, if you're not careful as a kid, it's hard for you to remember that your parents were one day kids themselves. And it's not as though is that they don't want you to have fun because they remember being a kid. But but what they want you to learn is that being fun is not what life is all about, alone. You can have fun in life, but if you want to have meaning, you better value a work ethic and many other things. And because my father was a good father, because he had our best interest at heart, he would not let us sleep our lives away when there was work to be done because he was trying to instill in us a value for work ethic that he knew was going to serve us in our future. Can I suggest to you today that your heavenly father is a perfect father and he too has your best interest at heart? And he too is at work in your life trying to instill in you values that are going to serve your future and your today. And I believe that valuing church is one of those things. He wants you to value church because he understands that it should be central to our lives. We understand this because when Jesus introduced the idea of church in Matthew 16, 17 to 19, if you're a note taker, we might cover this ground quicker than you would prefer throughout this message. These notes are always online on our website if you're visiting Matthew 16 reads this way, in the New Living Translation, Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. This is Simon, this is Peter, declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus goes on to say, you did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. This is where Jesus tells us about his mission. It's one of what we call in the world of theology, it's one of his declarative statements. He had two declarative statements. He came to seek and to save the lost, and he came to build the church. And the reason why he builds the church is to seek and save the lost. Upon this rock I will build my church. Now listen to what he says about the church. And the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Now right here, just in these few verses, Jesus tells us three important things about the church. One is that it is a divine mission because any mission that Jesus sends us on is divine because he is divine. It is a divine mission that is accompanied by divine power. See, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A divine mission accompanied by divine power and then he wraps it up because we're supposed to operate in divine authority. I don't know about you, but that sounds like something that God is saying to you and to me, this should be central to your life. This should be central to your journey if you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, this divine mission that's accompanied by divine power because we're supposed to operate and we're called to move in divine authority is supposed to be central to us. Is it possible that you're here tonight watching from home and church is not central to your life because your own personal ambitions have displaced the time it takes for church family to be central to you? It, it might be no matter how old you are, you, you feel like you're killing it in your vocation, that, that you're, you're bursting through all the definitions of success, just bursting through those gates one after another. Maybe your children adore you, your spouse reveres you, and your neighbors envy you. But it might be that on this Easter weekend, if you're honest with what you find on the inside, that you're like a 12-year-old sleeping in on Jesus, and he's saying to you this weekend, it's time to wake up. Because he's got something better for you waiting on the outside of your own ambitions. That there's a depth of meaning that he wants you to find in this life. And you will never find it until what he calls the church is central to you. Now church might not be central to you for a different reason. It might be because you've done church before. You've been a part of church before and you're reluctant for good reasons. It could be because you were disappointed in church in the past. It could be because you were betrayed by someone. It could be you were burned out, uninspired, confused, frustrated, or even bored. So this is the question that I would ask you. When are you going to stop allowing the failings of others to rob you of your divine mission and the divine power that he wants you to experience and the divine authority that you're supposed to operate? At some point, we cannot let the failings of other people take from us something and Supposed to be central. Here's my turn to Easter. See, I believe Jesus wanted the church to be central to Christianity because it is his plan for an ongoing witness to his resurrection. That Jesus wanted the church to be central to Christianity because it is his plan for an ongoing witness to his resurrection. Listen to Romans 8:11. It says, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. That's Easter lives in you. If you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, this is a big statement. This is Paul writing to the church of Rome, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. See, church is supposed to be a place where the world can come And what they find is the story of the resurrection inside of us. Even though it's something that we celebrate that took place 2,000 years ago, what we know is that the power of the resurrection that raised Christ is the same power that is raising up and awakening something in us. And there was supposed to be a place where the world can come to bear witness through our lives. And this is what we know. There are a few things that point people to the glory of God like the glory of resurrection So our first of three statements tonight is this come and see We're going to do come and see hope you got a button you might have got to go and tell you might have got to seek and find Come and see go and tell seek and find Come and see I'll never forget that it was in the summer of 1990. I'd been out of college for a year. You've heard part of this story before, and I was bartending, putting that college degree to work down in Slip in downtown Richmond. I was living with my parents, and I would go to church with them on the weekend out of respect. I, I said then I was going out of respect, but what I know now is that there was a longing inside of me for what my parents had. I was in a come and see season for my life. Now, I was familiar enough with the order of service because I had attended long enough to know when the the worship set would typically end and I would sneak in during the last song, sit next to my parents who were saving a seat for me so when it was time to sit down. I was just in the crowd with everybody else. It was a a multi-purpose space, about 500 people. And one of the reasons why I didn't like to be in worship is because it made me feel terribly uncomfortable. Because in that place of being in God's presence, I was convicted of the way that I was living. And I'll never forget the one Sunday morning as I was going to walk into the sanctuary, into the gymnasium rather, and the ushers were not letting people in because somebody was giving what we call a prophetic word. He was one of the elders of the church, Charlie Bevels. I'll never forget Charlie Bevels. He's a former FBI agent. He was about six foot five, about 230 pounds. And when he talked, you paid attention. And I was literally standing on the, in the threshold of the doorway. And Charlie's way up on the platform, quite a distance away. He's got his eyes closed. He doesn't even know that I'm there. The room's quiet and Charlie begins to say something like this. How long are you going to stand on the fence? How long are you going to stand on the threshold in the doorway of what I'm calling you to? How many people's lives do you need to see me change? One, ten, a hundred, a thousand. In that moment, it's like me and Charlie and God are the only people in the room sweating because I'm conspicuous. And it feels as though somebody told Charlie, Fred's pulling into the parking lot right now. (laughs) He's going to be standing in the doorway in about 14 minutes. But Charlie did not know I was there. But the Holy Spirit did. This is what we believe about who God is. He wants to get our attention he will chase us down and I will never forget that moment because as I looked around that room I knew many of the people that were there and I was familiar with their story and I knew what God had delivered them from I knew that they were changed they were different people than who they used to be because of the power of the resurrection and that was the year of my salvation. In December of that year of 1990, I made a vow of devotion to Christ. Listen to Mark 16, 1 through 8, reads this way. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. And very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. And on the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And the women were shocked. But the angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go, now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee and you will see him there just as he told you before he died. The woman fled the tomb, trembled. Listen to what it says, trembled and bewildered and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. They had seen an angel. They saw the the empty tomb of Christ, but even still, they were too afraid to say anything. See, before you can go and tell, you've got to first come and see. And we celebrate the faith of Mary and these other women. We do, because it took incredible faith for all the things that they were doing. But even still, they were not sure if it were true. They weren't sure. They weren't sure what to believe about Christ. In John 20, 1-2, it says, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, found that the stone had been rolled away. This is John's account. It says, she ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciples and the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. You, you following? She's, she's not convinced that he's been risen from the dead, even though an angel told her. She's not convinced. The story she tells is that someone took his body, and we do not know where they have put him. Come and see. Can I just tell you that churches are supposed to be like Easter morning cemeteries where people come and see others who were once dead in their sin but now alive in Christ. See, church is supposed to be central to our lives so that there's a place where we can gather that replicates every week the cemetery of Easter morning where people come who aren't sure what they believe about Christ. You might be here today and you're not sure what you believe about him. As you look around this room, maybe you might begin to wonder, how has the power of the resurrection of Christ changed the people here sitting next to me? Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave me Himself for me. See, as I was standing in that doorway in 1990 there at Mechanicsville Christian Center in Mechanicsville, Virginia, as I'm looking around the room, I was doing my own come and see. The Holy Spirit was at work convincing me of the truth of Jesus being the Messiah and my Savior. But you know what else was happening? God was saying to me, Fred, you're one day supposed to be in this room. So that when somebody else is standing in the doorway or looking around during the worship set or contemplating during the sermon, that they're going to look around the room and they're going to see you and they're going to know your story. And they're going to see now that you're dead to the life that you used to live and Christ is alive in you. You're supposed to be a part of somebody else's come and see just like these people are a part of yours. Church is supposed to be central not just because of something that happens to us when we come. At some point, people, church and the reason why you come has got to take a turn. It can't just be about what you get out of it anymore. In fact, I would suggest to you that many people who grow weary of church are people that never made that turn. Who spent too many years only asking the question, what's in it for me? But when you begin to realize that the story of the resurrection of Christ in you is going to be the convincing witness that if somebody else has come and see, I'm just telling you, you can't wait to get here every week. You can't wait to get here every week. Come and see, go and tell. Go until John twenty, nineteen to twenty nine, reads this way that Sunday evening the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Now, let's put the timeline that they already know that Jesus has been resurrected. They know. They've been to the tomb. They know he's not there. They're convinced Mary has has encountered what she thought was a groundskeeper who turned out to be Christ himself. Now she's told that story. Right? We have these incredible stories, the people that were on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is beginning to appear to people, but yet still they're cowering in fear. Not because they don't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, not because they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but because they're not sure if they're ready to go and tell. So good. Good. It says, suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Yeah. Peace be with you, he said. He spoke and he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. This is a go and tell moment, people. Look at this, then it says, then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is what we teach, right? We believe this is the moment where they were born again. This is their spiritual birth. This is when they're born into the family of God. Breathe on them, he says, and r- receive the Holy Spirit. They were born into the family of God so they could be reconciled to him. But can we just agree they were born into the family of God also so they could begin the mission of go and tell? If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. But one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not there with the others when Jesus came. So they told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Right? This is the phrase where everybody calls the, the, the idea of doubting Thomas. This is where it comes from. Eight days later, Eight days, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. (laughs) Jesus is like, yeah, I don't care about no locked doors. Suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them, peace be with you, he said, and then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into my wound and my side. Don't be faithless any longer, believe. My Lord, my God, Thomas explained. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those, this is us who believe without seeing me. See, I don't think Thomas was just wrestling with whether or not he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. I think he already knew that. I think what he's wrestling with is whether or not he's ready to go and tell other people. See, because the disciples, what they were saying is, hey, Jesus came. He appeared to us. And and he he said to us, it's time for us to get out of this room and go out into the world and begin to tell people that Jesus is alive. And Thomas is like, "Ah, I'm not sure if I'm ready to do that. See, if you come and see, you've got to be willing to go and tell. If you come and see, you've got to be willing to go and tell. Churches are supposed to be like upper rooms where people who lack the faith to be a witness for Jesus are convinced by him to join others in their mission to go and tell. Churches are supposed to be like upper rooms where people who lack the faith to be a witness for Jesus are convinced by Him to join others in their mission to go and tell. It's one of the reasons why we gather. It's one of the reasons why Jesus established the church. He built the church to seek and to save the lost. It's a cemetery for some who are still trying to figure out what they believe about Jesus. But if you have figured out what you believe about Jesus, then our question to you is, have you committed your life to go and tell? Have you embraced the reality that there are people in this world that you're supposed to be the one that tells them about Jesus? Don't be afraid to be honest about your doubts. This is what's so beautiful about the story. Jesus does not condemn Thomas. He comes back for him. He comes back for him. We love that people come who aren't ready yet for a go-and-tell life. We say that's okay because Jesus is going to come back for you just like he came back for Thomas. Thomas. Don't be afraid to be honest about your doubts. Jesus loves you just as much as he loved Thomas, and churches are the best places to find your upper room encounter with him. This idea of wearing masks to church because of COVID, I'm all for it. But can we just agree with each other that this idea of wearing masks to church is not new? It's just new that we can see them. And one of the reasons why we get stuck in a place of faithlessness and are not willing to be a go-and-tell person, it's because we feel unqualified. We feel disqualified. We've got Shame from our past. We, we, we've got things that people said to us that become wounds. And we come into spaces like this, and we've just got mask after mask after mask after mask to the point where those masks silence the witness that we're supposed to be to the world. And Jesus says, that's okay. And we say to you, that's okay. Okay. You keep bringing those masks into this upper room because Jesus wants to do for you what he did for Thomas. He's not intimidated by your doubt. He's not intimidated by your shame or your hurt. And he's gonna do for you what he did for them. He's just gonna start taking them off one at a time, peeling back the layers of your story, healing you as he goes until you're ready to step out of the upper room and become a go and tell for him. Come and see, go and tell, seek and find. Come and see, go and tell, seek and find. Oh, I like this one. I was joking with somebody outside, the people who grab the seek and find button after they hear the rest of what it means might be trying to trade it for one of the other ones. See seek and find, as you've already heard tonight from Vanessa when she came up for the transition, is about finding the church that you call home. But it's not just about that. It's about the kind of church you should be looking for. This is Acts 9, 10 through 15. It says, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, right? So we're moving through history a little bit here. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels that tell the story of Jesus. But then we get into Acts, which is called Acts because it's about the acts or the actions of the apostles. This is the story of the birthing of the church. And when we get to chapter 9, it says, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. And when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. Now we know Saul eventually becomes Paul who gives us most of the New Testament. Saul has had his Damascus Road encounter. He's had his come and see moment. He's about ready to become one of the greatest go-and-tells of all of history. It says, I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. He's blinded because of the, the, the brightness, right? The holiness of God. That's another whole sermon for another time. But you understand what's happening here, right? The Holy Spirit is giving Ananias such incredible specificity. Who this man is, where he is, and he's saying, and Ananias, I've also told Saw that you're coming, and I've given him your name. Incredible. Here it comes you. Ready? This is where we live, most of our lives, myself included. But Lord, our lives are filled with too many but lords. The reason why we can't. The reason why we shouldn't. The reason why he's mistaken. The reason why he's confused. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. See, Saul was murdering Christians by the hundreds. And the reason why he was on his way to Damascus is that he was trying to put down what was then called the way. It wasn't called Christianity yet. In Damascus, the same way that they were putting it down in Jerusalem. So, what it says in verse 14, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest, right? This is Ananias making his case. He's not questioning whether or not he's talking to God. This is what's incredible. He's so convinced that God is mistaken in what he's asking him to do. He's trying to correct the creator of the universe. But Lord, he said, here's another but Lord. He's authorized by the leading priest. To arrest everyone who calls on your name. See, sometimes go and tell costs us something. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. To Gentiles, to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. Church attendance is at the lowest it's ever been since they've been tracking it in the history of America. Did you know that? And I believe one of the reasons that's true is because younger generations are frustrated with church and what church has been for them because churches are stuck at verse 13. We're stuck in a but Lord moment. And we're not willing to pursue relationships with people that are different than we are. The same thing that Ananias struggled with, we're struggling still with today, 2,000 years later. See, the language here, I believe, which I'm going to share with you tonight, Gentiles, kings, and Israel, this isn't just some language that's being dropped in here. It's prophetic. Gentile isn't just a generic ethnic term that the Bible uses, although it is that, but it's more than that. Gentile speaks of every ethnicity other than Jewish people. you realize what that means? It means here that Jesus is giving us some insight into what the church is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like a Gentile church. It's supposed to look like people who look really different from one another. And the order that I believe this appears in the text is instructive. Gentile speaks to ethnic diversity. it speaks to cultural diversity. Then it jumps to kings. Now that represents prophetically many things too. It represents different classes in society. It represents a diversity of economic status. It represents are you ready for this? Different political persuasion. Stop it. Yes, it does. See, the Holy Spirit here is inspiring Luke and telling the story about the Holy Spirit speaking to Ananias. We're being given a blueprint of what church is supposed to look like. Ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, class diversity, economic diversity, political diversity. And then the last on the list is Israel. That prophetically means everybody else that looks like you. And it's last on the list because it's not hard to find people who look like you. Which is what too many churches are. It's just groups of people that look like each other. And one of the reasons why church attendance, I think, is on the decline is these up-and-coming generations are looking at the church, and they're saying the church has the same problem that I see here in the world. Now, my Bible scholars in the room might be racing to Romans 1.16 where Paul writes that the gospel goes to the Jew first, and that's true, but it's important that you understand that Romans 1.16 is about strategy, and Acts 9 is about outcome. Romans 1.16 is about strategy. The reason why Paul went into the synagogue first is because Jewish people, because of their Jewish heritage, and because of the Mosaic law inherently understood the idea of atonement, which is central to the gospel. Jesus died for us. They had an inherent understanding. You see, one of the, the reason why God birthed this nation of Israel was to birth Jesus as the Messiah, but to also birth a people that would understand what it meant to need a Savior. And so Paul went into the synagogues first by way of strategy so that then they could gather together go out in the world and pursue the outcome that God intended. Churches are supposed to be like straight street people. They're supposed to be like straight street where people who seek and find a family who would never otherwise be friends or work together to build a church Jesus envisioned to love the world he died to save. Seek and find means find your church. But as you're finding your church, find a church where not everyone looks like you, believes like you, talks like you, complains like you, or votes like you. I did a blog on it just on Friday, on Good Friday, called Caught Up Together, talking about the second coming of Christ. The link's right there on my Facebook page. His resurrection is supposed to be convincing. It's supposed to be convincing. Come and see. Come and see. If you're here tonight, if you're watching from home and you're not sure what you believe about Christ, you keep coming. You keep asking your questions. Come and see. The resurrection of Christ is convincing. Those of us who are dead to who we used to be and now alive in Christ. 2 Corinthians five seventeen: if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. The resurrection is compelling. Go and tell. It's compelling. Go and tell. If you've already made your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, then I trust that this Easter weekend is going to compel you to a go and tell life like never before. And this last one, this is my favorite one. His resurrection is captivating. We're supposed to be held captive, inescapable from our pursuit of building a church that's going to look a lot like the heaven that we're, we're headed to. Every tribe and every nation and every language, come and see, go and tell, seek and find i going to invite the worship team to come back up. As they're coming into place, I just want to share with you a little bit about this series because I hope that if this is the first message in the series that you've listened to, that you're going to go back and listen to the others, and then you're going to keep tracking with us. Because this series is designed to challenge you to develop seven life statements. Seven life statements in response to these seven core doctrines. So I'm just going to share with you briefly. I'm not going to teach about them again because I've been teaching them through the series. But I just want to tell you where I've landed. Again, Tonight we're seeing how does my belief that the church is central inspire me to pursue a life that reveals God's glory to the world around me so every week we're putting one of the seven doctrines in that fill in the blank and that you're going to pray and I'm trusting the holy spirit's going to give you just a simple statement I hope you begin talking about those statements with others you're going to end up with seven life statements these are the ones that I've developed so far when we did God is one the message on the Trinity, this is the life statement that I feel like I'm going to write down. This is going to guide me. I want to live for God more fully, just like how they live for one another. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are fully devoted to one another. I want to be more fully devoted to them. The second one, we talked about the Bible is true. I should, this, is the life, this is going to be a life statement for me. I want my life to be an echo of the wisdom of Scripture to the world around me. I'm not saying these are supposed to be yours, I'm saying find your own. Think about what these beliefs mean to you. Trust that the Holy Spirit's gonna help you divide, d- d- write down a statement. That as you walk in the truth of that statement, that your life is gonna begin to point other people to the glory of God. Last week, Pastor Justin was preaching about mankind is helpless. This is the one I wrote down, this is the one I don't like. I want to feel dependent even when I am able. I want to feel dependent even when I, this is a problem for me. I don't have a problem feeling dependent when, when I, when I feel helpless, but I have a problem feeling dependent when I feel like I can do it myself. I don't want to ever feel like I can do anything myself. I want the full weight of my life to be on Christ. I want to feel dependent even when I am able. And this is the one I feel like the Holy Spirit gave to me for this message tonight for the Church of Central. I want to cherish Jesus' bride like he does. I want to cherish Jesus' bride like he does. We have to be careful. Listen, just, let me just give you some pause. If, if if you've spent a lot of time speaking negatively of the church, I can appreciate that because of your story, but don't. But never forget that the church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5:25 to 27. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. Right? It's so powerful. What is it? It says he gave up his life for her. Speaking of the church. To make her holy and clean and washed by the cleansing of God's word, he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. And just be careful. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I want to call Jesus' wife ugly. Just saying. Just saying. We know the church is not a perfect place because it's filled with imperfect people, but the idea of church is God's plan. And it's his plan to seek and to save the lost because it's supposed to be a place that is a witness for his resurrection until he comes back. It was central to why he came and it must be central to our lives as we live. Stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, I pray that even now, that maybe you would begin to form in people's hearts an insight and an understanding to a life statement that you want them to begin to live by when they think about the church being central. I pray too for people that are here tonight that maybe they're in a come and see moment and they're wrestling with what they believe Jesus about you just as you have done for us by your Holy Spirit that there would be divine revelation and epiphany this Easter weekend that Jesus, that you are the Son of God and that you died for their sin. For people that are wrestling with whether or not they're going to give themselves to this go and tell life, I pray God that even now in this song you would just begin to peel back the masks that have silenced them. And I pray for those that need to seek and find not just for people that are here tonight or maybe watching from home who need to find a church to call home, but they would be inspired tonight for the kind of church that they would look for. Would be a church that looks a lot like the heaven that we're headed towards. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.